following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. are the last days These are the days we need Him the most Our chances are slim now It narrows the way not chosen by most This could be our last call There's no tomorrow for holding on to so let's hold on to the truth Perilous times have come There's already those in tribulation The fullness of times won't be long But lovers of self more than lovers of God and there's pride in the hearts of everyone We need to repent Turn from our ways And overcome as He overcame And if we're possibly lukewarm Then we have been forewarned are the last days and we've been condemned by our own disregard for what inhabits our hearts we're neither hot nor cold but in our own eyes the temperature's right Somehow we're living just right We claim we have need of nothing And yet we are poor, naked, wretched and blind We must be out of our minds We need to repent Turn from our ways and overcome as he overcame And if we're possibly lukewarm Then we have been forewarned We need to repent And turn from our ways And overcome as he overcame And if we're possibly lukewarm Then we have been forewarned Our vision is impaired We're looking for gold that's everything but pure Our vision is impaired We're striving for gold that's everything but pure We should seek white arraignment that our nakedness does not appear those who have an ear I hope that this is clear We need to repent Turn from our ways And overcome as He overcame And if we're possibly lukewarm Then we have been forewarned Turn from my ways and overcome as he overcame. And if we're possibly lukewarm, then we have been forewarned.
Holy Spirit, would you come and quicken now? Would you come and quicken now our hearts? We were prompted by your Holy Spirit to be present. We were called. We are here. Would you speak to us, Holy Spirit, and would you quicken our hearts? Would you uncover? Would you unveil? Would you make plain to us our standing before you, Jesus, King of all the earth? I pray now that I could step back in weakness and you, Jesus, would step forward in strength. For you said in my weakness, your strength was perfect. Lord, I have no strength. Would you be strong for us today, Jesus? I pray in your holy name. Amen. The message is entitled, You Cannot Be Saved in Your Sin. I'm uncomfortable with that title because everything in my history tells me that I am saved in my sin. My response to the Holy Spirit in the privacy of my prayer room was, Lord, how can a man live without sin? He responded, haven't I heard that question before? Isn't that what Nicodemus asked me? How can a man be born again? It's the same question. Jesus went on to speak with Nicodemus in John, the third chapter, by telling him that everything he was concerned about regarding this issue of being born again, being a new creature in Christ, everything about that issue that he was resistant with was unbelief. And so today, if you have difficulty with the statement that you cannot be saved, in your sin, put a check in your heart beside unbelief. Because like Nicodemus, you may not want to enter in through the door of righteousness, Jesus. Now I'll try to describe briefly for you the situation as I waited before God for this message. He gave me the title, You Cannot Be Saved in Your Sin. And I said, Lord, I need a new revelation. I began to read the text for the day, which is found in Romans, the sixth chapter, beginning with verse 1. And as I began to read this passage of Scripture, a very strange thing occurred. Normally, when I study for a sermon, I will look at all of the relevant passages of Scripture centered around the specific Scripture that I'm going to be dealing with. And then often I will pray through those and then go to reputable commentaries and find out what they have to say about these passages of Scripture. I'll compare Scripture with Scripture. And finally, as I wait before the Lord, things begin to settle through, sift through, and come into a coherent form that can be given as a sermon. I often have spoken to my wife about this, saying that sermons are usually born, and if they're delivered before they're born, no one can understand them. This one was not brought about in that manner. Usually when I look at the scriptures, immediately they become technicolor before me. 
and I see the story unfolding almost as though on a screen before me. This time, as I began to enter into the Spirit and and into the Scriptures, it was not a vivid picture before me, but rather it was though I was transported and was actually there, seeing it for what it was right then. And it's that immediacy that I hope you can catch today as I share with the Holy Spirit, began to unveil for me in this passage of Scripture. This is a very difficult passage of Scripture because historically it has been stated by Watchman Nee, for example, a man that I had a great deal of respect for, but also by many others particularly those in line of Calvinism or of the Baptist persuasion or of the covenant persuasion. Most would say that chapter 6 begins the transition into sanctification, having now fully in chapters 1 to 5, explain justification. The Geneva Bible commentary on this point says that chapter 6 is the transition point, and from this place forward, we'll be speaking only about sanctification. This is the framework that most of us have grown up with, believing that when a man comes to Jesus, his sins are forgiven, and righteousness is imputed to him. That is, righteousness is given to him even though it is not his. It belongs to Jesus. He doesn't have it. He continues to walk in sin, but he is saved because he's accepted Jesus and he said a sinner's prayer, and so now he's going to go to heaven. And then they come to the point where now you are saved and sanctification is supposed to begin to happen and now you'll spend the rest of your life struggling to overcome sin in your heart. Recognizing that you'll never be able to overcome sin in your heart, you're always going to be a sinner until the day you die. And the day you die, something is supposed to miraculously happen, thus making death salvation instead of the resurrection of Jesus the salvation. But all of our salvation language comes out of this kind of understanding. And so in my personal private prayers, I find myself saying things like, Lord, it seems as though I just can't do it. I try and I try and I fail. Forgive me, I'm a sinner. And so always the salvation language of the sinner is, I'm a sinner. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for what You've done for me on the cross. I'm still a sinner. Thus carrying on my shoulders the burden and the weight of knowing that I am utterly unclean before God, saved by his grace and the blood of Jesus that's supposed to declare me righteous. And so my salvation language is always, I'm in process. I'm trying harder. I'm not through. That's the salvation language that we've become accustomed to using. And we would never think, we could not even imagine, in fact, we would be embarrassed to speak the words, I have by faith been made righteous in Jesus Christ. I have been made perfect in Jesus Christ. Oh, don't even begin to talk about that. We have scorned that in America for so many years. But are you aware that through the great opening of the Pentecost window at Azuzu Street, all conservative, true Christians in America believed that to go to heaven you could not sin. Wow, have things changed in this modern day of deception? Even 
John Calvin in his institutes maintained that you could not separate sanctification and justification. You could not separate them. And that if a man were walking in sin, he was condemned before God and had not ever been saved. But through the years, we opened the door to a complete lie that said we can separate justification and sanctification and we're welcome to continue walking in the lust of our life in our wonderful American lifestyle, the lifestyle of the rich and the famous. And we're on our way to heaven and God loves us. And so now God's judgments are about to be poured out in wrath upon America. And Americans are going to say, what did we do? You just murdered countless millions of babies. You used your military power to destroy nations. You have taken God out of everything possible. You have enlarged sexual sin across the nation, across the world. You have, you have seduced the world with your wickedness. What have we done? We're innocent. We've just been doing our best. Well, look with me at the scriptures. Please don't believe what I say to you. Believe what the scriptures say to you. Let's begin in chapter 5, verse 20. The law was added so that the trespasses might increase. You know what a trespass is? There's a no trespassing sign up on that piece of property. And you say, I have a right to go on that property, whether it says that or not. I'm a friend. Until the sheriff comes. And he says, you're a trespasser. And he hauls you off to jail. Because the sign meant no trespassing. The law was added so that the trespasses might increase. In other words, so that you would really know you were trespassing. God simply put a sign up. You're already breaking the covenant with the Lord. You're already entering into death. But now he puts a sign up so that you'll see that you're really trespassing. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if you go to Titus, you Understand very quickly that grace is not permissiveness. Grace is rather what teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Now what proves this, it says grace must reign through righteousness. It does not say grace will reign through your unrighteousness. It does not say grace reigns while you keep trying. It does not say grace will reign as you explore your options. It doesn't say that. It says grace reigns through righteousness. And what is righteousness? Just so that we can be clear about what we're talking about. We're not talking here about some legalism, please. We're speaking here about innocence. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is an absence of offense. Righteousness is innocence. It's not a list of things that you're supposed to do. Righteousness is something that you are. It's innocence. Are you angry at a baby because it's innocent? Are you angry at a baby because it doesn't cuss? Or are you angry at a baby because it has a sweet smile? No, that's what we love about babies. The innocence of a child is what we love about that newborn baby. So when we speak about righteousness, we're not speaking about a hard list of do's and don'ts that you have to come up to and 
perform so that you can be righteous. Righteous means innocent. Righteous means my guilt has been taken away. My offenses have been taken away. And I have been given the gift of being innocent. Now read chapter 6 with me. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? If you'll go down to verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. If you have the King James Version, it will say destroyed. And the Greek word there literally means to abolish, to utterly destroy, to completely remove. Sin is something that can be totally removed from our hearts. It can be totally removed from our lives, and we can be given the gift of innocence. We cannot be saved in our sin. We can only be saved from our sin and out of our sin. The grace of God was given to us, not so that we could live in the midst of our pain, but so that healing could flow into our souls. I mean, what kind of a Savior would it be if the Savior were to say, I'll save you in a hundred years? No, I'll save you after you've gone through all the pain. No, the Savior is now. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you can be utterly, totally, and completely delivered. It's not a future deal. It's a now deal. So there is no excuse for any person to continue walking in their sin, save the excuse of unbelief that Nicodemus faced. There is never again a reason for a Christian to say, I'm trying my best. I'm trying, but I just, I just keep failing. Well, of course you do. Go ahead and crawl in the grave and die. Let it be over for the flesh. The flesh only can try. So you have a little child. The little child's been outside playing and gotten very dirty. And mama wants to go to town. And so mama brings in little boy, gets him all cleaned up, clean shirt, clean pants. Mama's now got to finish getting ready and little boy runs outside. And mama said, don't get in the mud. You know where he heads for the mud. Stomps through the mud, suddenly sees there's a smudge of dirt on his clean shirt and he knows he better clean that off. And so he wipes it. And that only puts more mud on, so he wipes it with the other hand. And of course, that puts more mud on. Can that little boy clean himself up in the mud puddle? Not a possibility. There is only one answer for that little boy, and that's back into the bath. And Mama puts a clean shirt on him and a clean pair of pants. He was innocent when he went outside until he climbed back in his mud puddle. And then he was no longer innocent. Did he need to climb back in the mud puddle? No. He was clean. The scripture talks about it in a much more graphic way. It says a dog always returns to its vomit. So you can get cleaned up. You can get washed up real pretty in the flesh. 
you can get it all slicked up. But the fact is, in the flesh, you're going to go back out and you're going to get right back in that mud and you're going to have to come back inside again. And that's what most of us have known all of our lives is the Christian faith. Until finally everybody said, look, don't worry about if you get back in the mud. All of us do. So you're fine. Go to church in your jeans. Go to church any way you want. Accept what God has given to you. Just enjoy a good time. Relax. Because you're never going to be holy anyway. And you're never going to be righteous anyway. Until you die. And then something is supposed to buzz. And you're supposed to be holy suddenly. Do you know what happens to a person who all at once would become holy? They would be utterly uncomfortable and heaven would be hell for them. They would not like it. You know what they would say? I am so bored. Where's the football game? Let's start a football league. I can see it right now. Hey, guys, this is boring. Could we start a, let's, let's do a little football this afternoon. No. You don't go from the mud puddle to heaven where you don't play in the mud anymore and be happy. You've got to come out now and let it be finished now or you'll never go to heaven. You either walk in victory here and now or you'll never walk in victory on the other side. Notice what it says. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It's this new life that has to come into us at the National Prayer Chapel. Now keep your hand right there in Romans. Go with me to the book of John. Let's begin with verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What does the truth set us free from? Sin. The truth sets us free from sin. So today, if you're willing to hear the truth of Jesus, it will set you free from your sin. Notice he goes on in verse 34. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In that day, slavery was very common. And if a family owned a do-loss slave, they could sell that slave at any point. A slave had no right to family or property. They were considered property by the Romans. Slaves were usually conquered people. It didn't matter what your race or nationality was. If you were conquered by the Romans, you were considered their slave. But then, if you were sold into slavery, that was a do-loss slave. 
The Greek word doulos describes a kind of slave that has no rights. Jesus is saying a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. What is your place with Jesus Christ? Are you a slave of the devil, a slave to sin, who likes to visit the house of the Lord, but who is consumed and controlled by the powers of darkness? Your heart is rebellious. Your heart is hard. You're determined to go your way. So you are not then a part of the family and you are only temporarily in the house of the Lord. The day will come when you will not be in the house of the Lord, and you will be with the enemy's camp. You see, it's not possible to be in the house of the Lord for very long before a decision must be made. When the truth is spoken, you have to either come up out of that sin and die, or you have to leave the house of the Lord because you're being called to be free. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Go back with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians, the first chapter. Colossians, the first chapter. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Or you may find it in your King James, enemies in your mind as shown by your wickedness. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. I want you to see that this is past tense. Christ has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. That's current. That's not future. So it is not some future time that we are looking to when we will become righteous. We have past tense, been reconciled to God. So we have been reconciled to God if we have accepted what he did on the cross and we have entered into covenant with him and we have chosen to serve Jesus Christ. We have repented of our sins. We've turned aside from them. We are then counted as reconciled to him without blemish free from accusation, simply another word of saying innocent. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. The gospel that is proclaimed to every creature under heaven is that you can be free of your sin in Jesus Christ. Not, not declared righteous, but actually made righteous. Now, this is not easy material to talk through. And one of the reasons it's not easy is that we have our salvation language that we're accustomed to, and we have our ways that we are accustomed to, and we are creatures of habit. And so when someone comes speaking something that we don't quite understand, we immediately try to jam it into our old frame of reference and understanding. But this is much too important to do that with because you recognize this is about your and my salvation. This is about where we will spend eternity. This is not a casual discussion, a philosophic discussion. This is not a rotary club. This is not a Kiwanis club or a moose club. This is not a a dinner club. 
This is a place where we speak about heaven and hell, where we talk about what it's going to take for us to enter in and be able to be one with Jesus Christ and be recognized as his son or his daughter and enter into eternal life. And because those issues are so important, and because our future depends on what we do with what we hear, we need to hear clearly. You cannot biblically make any excuse for continuing to sin. We cannot make any further excuse in this house for trying. If we say we're trying, what we are really saying is, I don't believe Jesus has the power to deliver me. And frankly, I don't want to be delivered, but I'd like to at least be on the journey. I like my sin, and I don't want to give it up. All of which you would have to agree with me are the words of a mentally insane person. I mean, if I told you, oh, you all ought to come up and see what I'm building. Some people can't see it, but I see it. I'm cobbling together a ladder. And you say to me, Pastor, you play along with me and you say, okay, Pastor, what are you building the ladder for? And I say, I'm building the ladder so I can climb to the moon. You would say to me, you are certifiably crazy. But I say to you, if you over here are cobbling together some kind of ladder that says I can't help it, it's just how I am. I keep doing my best and I can't make it. I'm going to have to say from the scriptures, you are certifiably morally insane. Oh, you're intellectually all there. You're just morally insane. Because when we begin to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no longer any room to claim that what Jesus did at the cross was insufficient to break the power of sin over my life. On heaven's door was poured out all of the love of the ages. At the cross, we see the fullness of God. Nothing was withheld. But if the medicine is not taken, the patient will surely die. So we find here in Colossians, verse 27, to them, that is the saints, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. This is what I'm doing today. I'm struggling with all the energy that Jesus has placed in me to say to you, do you recognize the moral insanity of continuing to walk in rebellion against the Most High God? You recognize that you can't try any longer to be a Christian. Christians are not people who try. Christians are people who've gone to the cross. They have crucified themselves on that cross. They have given up the way of the flesh, and they have accepted the innocence from Jesus so that the gift of God is in their heart. So the joy of the Lord can spring up in them. There's a bumper sticker. It says something like this. The only difference between me and you is I'm forgiven. It's that lie 
that is causing England in their cultural ministry to make a decision to begin changing all of their church buildings that the state owns into fitness clubs and restaurants. Because no longer do the people of England go to church. And these buildings have been sitting there empty, costing the state money. And so finally they're saying, look, let's keep them in their beautiful appearance as cathedrals, but let's turn them into health clubs and make some money. Let's turn them into restaurants. Let's turn them into community centers. We might as well do something worthwhile with them. What is your testimony? Would your testimony about your standing with Jesus Christ cause another person to say, you're not like me. There's an innocence in your life. There's a glory in your face. There's something about the way you live. You don't flow into the wickedness of this age. You don't watch the things we watch. You don't talk about the things we talk about. You don't go the places we go. You have a different sense about you. You're not worried about the financial collapse. You're not panicked about what's happening. Who are you? Are people saying that about you? Or does your life look like their life and you just say, I'm forgiven? Are you saying to them, look, I'm trying as hard as I can. Why don't you come to me with church and try with me? I mean, thank you very much. I wouldn't go. I have a hard enough time doing the workout at the gym. Why do I want to go to church and try to work out? Church is not a gym. It's not a place where we go and try to build our spiritual muscle. I want to show you one more part. Verse 19 of Colossians, the second chapter. It's speaking about those who delight in false humility, the worship of angels. People who go into great detail about what they've seen and and what they've understood in the spirit realm. You get into a lot of this with what's called spiritual warfare. Look at verse 19. He's lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And so here I have a a woman coming in and talking with me and saying, Pastor, I just can't deal with with the sin of lust in my heart. But I'm able to sing in the choir just fine. And I'm able to talk to people about Jesus just fine. You know, I fast. I do all the things I should do, but I just can't deal with the lust of my heart. You know what that person is? They're a religious person. They're not a Christian. You know the difference between religion and Christianity? Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a faith and a loyalty to a man named Jesus. Religion is a system of rules and regulations and things I have to do and ways I'm supposed to be. Are you religious? Are you a Christian? Today is we come before the Lord. Is there sin in your life? Are the things you're doing that you know steal innocence from your heart? 
Is there bitterness or anger in your soul? Is there unforgiveness in your heart? Are there attitudes of anger, judgment, hardness? All of that is sin. That's why Jesus came with the first word saying, repent. Always he came saying, repent. And if we would repent and turn aside from those wicked ways, he would rain righteousness upon us. He would give to us the gift of righteousness. So today, as you come before the Lord, let me ask you the question. Do you have sin in your heart? Do you have rebellion in your heart? Have you been trying and you haven't been able to make it? And the Lord's answer to you is very simple. Simply repent. Turn away from that. And accept the grace that Jesus wants to pour out for you. Let his mercy come in. Some of you, as I look at your faces, your face is an absolute study in in struggle with sin. And I have to ask you, how long are you, how long are you going to struggle with it? Why not simply take your hands off it and give it to Jesus? This is not, this is not rocket science. This is not complicated. It's simply, when are you going to take your hands off the sin and give it to Jesus and let him carry it? And by faith, take a position that you are now holy before God, given into the hand of Jesus for his wonderful grace and mercy, and that you don't have to walk in that darkness any longer. You do not have to be a slave of the devil. Jesus said you didn't. Will you believe him? Almighty God, you've not called us to walk in sin. You've called us to walk in innocence before you with no charge against us. Lord, I ask now for every man and every woman in this house, every boy and every girl, that we would simply make the decision to take our hands off our sin and lift them up to you, Jesus, in surrender. Lord, would you come today amongst us? Would you convict our hearts?
You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon. Of his glory.